Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Receiving and processing those information is a very complex phenomenon, so when we think that you know something might be just satirical or ironic and not relevant, then people think otherwise which is very unfortunate. The greatest threat to trust in media and democracy itself is the proliferation of misinformation and disinformation by bad actors. Fortunately, more and more fact-checking technologies are coming online to help. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Since July 2021, Sandro Kigori has been working as the English content editor at the Media Development Foundation's fact-checking platform, Myth Detector. Sandro is here today to talk about how Myth Detector identifies and debunks misinformation. Sandro, welcome to It's All Journalism. Good morning, and thank you very much for having me. Okay, so, so first of all, tell me a little bit about your background. You know, what led you to your current position at the Media Development Foundation? You know, growing up in Georgia, which is the center of geopolitical events and these turbulent events that are happening now, I'm always passionate about international relations and I always wanted to explore these processes in more detail. Oh, I was always particularly interested in the topics of cyber warfare and propaganda methods. And I think the Media Development Foundation is one of the leading organizations in Georgia, if not the only leading organization in Georgia that tackles these issues and has a very straightforward goal of combating disinformation and anti-Western propaganda. So even before being employed here at Media the Open Foundation, I constantly observed the work uh, MDF has been doing, and I've been using it for my own research as well. So as soon as they announced the position for the English content editor, I immediately applied because I knew that this position was a perfect match for me. And I was lucky enough to be hired here at MDF. I've been working here since July 2021. So it's almost been a year. And I think my cooperation with MDF and Myth Detector has been uh, rather productive. We have carried out a number of very interesting projects. Okay. So just so people understand Myth Detector, how, how does Myth Detector work? Myth Detector is Media Open Foundation's fact-checking platform, which was created back in 2014, but it has started fact-checking information intensively since 2019 when it became a member of IFCN, which stands for International Fact-Checking Network. It's a network of uh, fact-checking organizations worldwide that have the same broad goal of fighting disinformation. Since 2020, Myth Detector became a member of Facebook's third-party fact-checking program, under which MythDetector identifies and verifies false content disseminated on Facebook. It uh, marks and rates the content on Facebook. It also reduces the spread of false information. So it's a fact-checking platform that mainly aims at countering viral mis- and disinformation on both traditional and social media. Tell me a little bit about the people that people or organizations that that you routinely sort of follow or track that are disseminating false information? So Myth Detector is working in four 
main directions. The first direction that we are focusing on is foreign information manipulation operations. So for that purpose, we are monitoring Russian mainstream media and also websites and media outlets that are affiliated with the Russian government that operate not only in Russia per se, but also in Georgia as well. So those are one of our primary monitoring subjects. We are also working on identifying domestic propaganda. So we closely monitor trolls and fake pages that serve specific political purposes and disseminate disinformation on social media. The third main category of actors that we are monitoring are websites that have economic purposes. And by that, I mean web clickbait websites. And last year, we also started monitoring anti-vaxxer Facebook accounts that have been disseminating mis- and disinformation related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Okay. So let's focus a little bit on the misinformation about COVID. You know, you find a post from one of these actors that you, bad actors that you've been following, you know, how do you, you know, investigate the falsehood and sort of the process of, you know, identifying, but also, you know, saying this is false information and, and here's why. Actually, at Mint Detector, we have a very straightforward, defined methodology of verifying information. The first step is called selection. We select information based on several criteria. The first criteria is how verifiable the claim is in general. Maybe it's a hypothesis or a prediction. We are purely focused on fact-checking facts and looking for factual evidence. We are also looking at whether there is a manipulation of facts that is taking place. Also, we are looking at to observe how significant the error is and what the impact it might have on the potential audience. We are obviously looking for the sources and observing sources very carefully. We are interested in seeing how reliable the source is behind the information. And very importantly, we have been trying to keep track whether this type of disinformation or misinformation has been disseminated in the past as well, so that we can find out whether this has been a part of a larger campaign or coordinated behavior. And also, as I've mentioned before, we are really taking into account what the potential impact of the disinformation might be. And given uh, the topic of the pandemic, we all are aware how massive the consequences of the disinformation related to the pandemic can be. So that was our primary focus to try to reduce the spread of disinformation as much as we can. What's interesting is I spent a little time on your website and for example, there was a story up there and I don't, I know it had to do something with President Joe Biden from the United States, but in the, the artwork to it was sort of slapped the word satire. But the information that was in the story was being shared out. And because of the way, you know, information spreads virtually, people will sometimes spread a headline that they kind of agree with that may actually be coming from something that's, you know, a humorous piece, an opinion piece or satire. Is that something that's fairly common? Yes, actually, that tendency has been rather common in Georgia and not only in Georgia. We have recently started monitoring Russian social media as well. And what we have observed is that satirical content is being disseminated there as well and quite intensively. When it comes to satire, it's interesting that there are numerous websites on internet that clearly indicate in their about this section that they are satirical and all the stories that are being published there are being fabricated and made up. 
Such website is, for example, the Babylon Bee, which is very well known globally. And what is unfortunate is that some people sometimes without realizing it, or in other cases, purposely, they disseminate those satirical information as authentic facts. We have identified actually a number of cases when satirical content related to the pandemic was being spread as real information. And uh, it's uh, interesting how people tend to perceive and consume information because at one glance, you might think that you no, know, no one will actually believe that this kind of information might be even close to reality. But what we have observed, we've been looking at the comment section of the post to see whether people actually tend to be deceived and believe that this is true. And what we've observed is that many people do actually think that this is authentic, that these kind of stories are authentic. I can remember one specific example, for instance, uh, there was a rumor that in order to unlock your iPhone, you would need to get vaccinated. So only the vaccinated people could <laughs> unlock their iPhones. And one thought that seems very absurd and nobody, I mean, you would immediately think that no one would believe that. But what we saw in the comment sections is that people actually were believing it. So the whole chain and whole network of spreading false information and the way people's minds think while receiving and processing those information is a very complex phenomenon. So when we think that you know something might be just satirical or ironic and not relevant, then people think otherwise, which is very unfortunate. You don't hear it as much as you used to, but there was a time in the United States when you would see a headline that was really so unbelievable that somebody was changing that you said, oh, is that like an, an onion headline for the, the mm -hmm. website, The Onion? But, you know, there are other sites out there that are doing this sort of humorous news and it's difficult to combat people sharing it. So what is the end result here? I mean, you identify a story, you explore the facts. How do you present it on your website? So that is actually the fourth step of our uh, methodology, which means that we have to explain how or why the disseminated information is false. So on our website, we publish an article that dives into the disinformation. It deconstructs it. First of all, we start by explaining the dissemination cycle. So who was the primary source that disseminated this information? Then comes the actual claim that has been made and then how or why that claim is false or manipulative. So that is the structure of our article. Then obviously the claim is being followed by a number of arguments explaining why this is false. Also a very important part of our articles is indicating the sources. Obviously, we are heavily reliant on open sources. So every single article that you would come across at Mr. Sector is grounded by facts, statistics, open sources that are accessible for everyone. So once we write the article, Facebook allows us to use that article to rate a specific content on Facebook. So once we rate an article, then a sign appears directly on the front page of the content saying that this information is false or this photo is altered. This information is missing context. That gives the readers the possibility to see that I uh, know you are might maybe mistakenly led to a direction to be deceived or something of that kind. So that really gives a very straight warning to the reader that this information 
might be different from what you think. And also what is important in Facebook's fact-checking program is that once we rate a specific post, the dissemination gets very limited. So the spread gets automatically lowered. That is also a very significant factor because we know that, you know, even though you mark something as false, people might ignore it or tend to think that, you know, wherever these people are also making things up. But what is important here is that by rating a specific content on Facebook, the dissemination gets limited as well. And also Facebook gives us the opportunity to use artificial intelligence to identify content that is similar to the ones that are being marked by us. So by marking one specific content, we are then have access to hundreds of other materials that are similar. So that gives us the opportunity to increase our scale and rate as many fake content as possible. That's actually a really nice feature. And, I, and I've seen, not from your organization, but from some other organization, I've seen posts on Facebook that were marked that way. You know, I like the fact that it it marks whatever the particular story is as false, but it also affects dissemination of it because it becomes problematic when you publish something. And this is kind of where journalism ethics runs into a, a difficult situation. You're supposed to correct mistakes online, you may have a mistake in your tweet, then it's like, well, how do you deal with that? I mean, deleting it may not be the correct answer. Updating it in the comments might be a better answer. But these sort of tricky areas when there are legitimate reasons why, okay, I got to go back in and I got to fix something. When you've rated a story, do you get any feedback or any response from the publications or the person who are person or organization who is sending out this information? I think that's a very important part because most of the times whenever we rate something, people actually go and delete it, which is very unfortunate because that way you cannot really change anything afterwards. What is interesting here is that Facebook gives us the opportunity to remove the rating after a specific article has been corrected. So we always encourage the people who for instance, disseminate misinformation that they can modify their content by making it clear that, you know, what we have disseminated in the past was by mistake or we did it unconsciously. So we have included an update in our article. Once they do that, they can file a form notifying us that the article has been updated so that we can remove the rating afterwards. And actually, we receive updates from news outlets notifying us that they've corrected their mistakes, asking us to remove the rating, which we do. And also, we keep track of the numbers, how many people approach us, for instance, monthly, so that we can somehow make sense of our progress, because the more people correct their mistakes, it means that the impact of our work is better. Have you gotten much feedback from readers, from people who are seeing these things and, and seeing your corrections? Yes. Most of the times they are saying that, you know, they've corrected their mistakes, saying that please remove the rating, which we do. But there are obviously cases when they just protest, saying that we are the ones that are basically spreading and disseminating false information. So we do get a bit of backlash here and there as well. But uh, there have been also a number of cases when readers asked us to modify something already in our article. 
because something that we wrote was, for instance, outdated or needed a more specification. Obviously, we are open to that as well, because this is an open process. We invite actually our readers to give us feedback. So we do keep in mind that there can be specific errors or recommendations that we can take into account. And whenever we update our own articles, all the time we put a disclaimer in the top saying that the article or the content of the article has been updated per the recommendation or the suggestion or the note from our readers. That's a great, you know, a great practice. Transparency is, is so key in this, especially when you're in a dialogue with somebody who is spreading misinformation. Now, I, I know that you mentioned that one of the groups that you, you sort of monitor are people who are, you know, maybe around a particular issue that they send things out on. Do most of the organizations who are sort of their whole purpose is to spread disinformation, do they just not communicate with you, not make any changes? They just continue, oh, well, this was detected. I'm just going to go to the next false piece of information I'm going to send out. Unfortunately, that is the case for most of the organizations. And I would not say organizations. I would prefer to use the term actor or the source in this case. But most of the sources that are, for instance, affiliated with Russia, uh, in this case, they have one specific purpose to mislead as many people as possible. They are not really aiming at correcting anything. So that, that is their primary goal to you know, instill as much fear as possible and instrumentalize those fears in society. So obviously they do not communicate with us. The only way of communication is that sometimes even threaten us saying that you know, we are kind of restricting their freedom of expression while we are simply putting a sign on their posts indicating that you know, this information is incorrect. We are by no means deleting or removing anyone else's content. We actually do not have any capacity to do that because that would be way beyond our competency. I mean, for instance, Facebook itself has the capacity to remove specific pages or accounts that have been observed to be involved in coordinated inauthentic behavior, but that is not from our side, that is from Facebook's side itself. So sometimes we do receive these kind of false blames that we are restricting somebody's right of expression. When it comes to actors that are, for instance, pro-Kremlin or affiliated with Kremlin or have a very specific political agenda, they simply wish to ignore cooperating with us because this way they can even somehow make us to be the villains. They can vilify us so that they can gain more followers. So that's a very complicated issue by itself. So I would imagine that there's been a lot of information going out having to do with Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine which I guess is a statement and not a question. So let me, let me make it into a question. Was there an increase in misinformation being pushed out following the invasion of Ukraine? Absolutely. If we could compare the numbers, in 2021, we wrote around 800 articles, 51% of which was devoted to the pandemic. Now in 2021, following the Russian intervention in Ukraine, most of our articles are now devoted to the conflict. Actually, even to give you the exact scale of our work, Facebook actually has allowed us to monitor not only Georgian social media, but also Belarusian and Ukrainian and Russian social media. So Facebook allows us to expand our scope and uh, monitor three more countries. So we have observed 
a boost in disinformation campaigns directed against many different actors in Ukraine, including the Ukrainian government or the president itself, the Ukraine as a whole. So there has been a kind of plethora of disinformation concerning Ukraine. We've been obviously focused on this case because of obvious reasons. And actually, Facebook's third party fact-checking program has helped us to understand the complexity of the disinformation directed to Ukraine. A month ago, actually, we have published a report that deals with the typology of messages directed against Ukraine and the key actors that have been disseminating those information. It's called uh, Russian Information Warfare, and the report itself is based on our fact check. So we have kind of made sense of the general picture. Who are the main sources of disseminating this information against Ukraine? Who are the actors behind what are the networks, or are they connected, etc. And only in two months, so the report covers the period of two months, it's actually from February 24th to April 24th, and only in that period we have identified 160 individual disinformation narratives that then we divided into specific categories and uh, types. So the scale is abnormal, it's really big. I think you mentioned this, but it's not, you're not just examining text articles. You're also looking at, you know, video and photos that have been altered as part of these deceptions. You know, how are you able to check whether, you know, an image has been altered or whether someone has manipulated a video? We are heavily reliant on photo and video verification tools. For instance, when it comes to fact-checking a video, we use a specific tool that is called Invit, which is a very useful tool, not just for us fact-checkers, but also for the general public. We always encourage our readers and our general public to kind of include this Chrome extension into their computers because it makes it really easy for everyone to fact-check a video. So what this tool does, it dissolves the video into specific keyframes using which then we are able to look for specific images using Google search or TNIF specific visual searching tools. These kind of tools are really useful for us because otherwise it would be very difficult to identify and verify visuals. Actually, it's very interesting because one of the most interesting articles that we wrote regarding the um, conflict in Ukraine was about a fabricated video which was disseminated before, initially before the emergence of the conflict. So a video from 2012, which was about marriage equality and was prepared by a British organization, it was being used, modified. The logo of the Ukrainian land forces was artificially manually inserted to the video and also specific Ukrainian uh, sentences were added to it. And the whole thing was presented as if Ukraine was conscripting gay couples into the Ukrainian army. That was then followed by a backlash by the social media users here. Many of them have been claiming that, you know, Ukraine is being punished for the sins because it's trying to, I don't know, impose this LGBTQ agenda. So after using this uh, specific tool that I've just mentioned, Invit, we were then able to identify the original video, which had absolutely nothing to do with Ukraine. So that was actually one of our most interesting fact checks that we did using visual verification tools. So with something like that, or one of these other things that you've debunked, Facebook has 
marked it and downgraded its its shareability. Does this disinformation sort of still continue to to be spread, or, or are you seeing an impact in the work that you're doing? I think marking on Facebook as false really impacts the dissemination. It reduces the dissemination by a lot because one cannot be certain, obviously, because even though we use artificial intelligence and matching mechanisms, you cannot guarantee that you know every single post or every single article has been fact-checked or labeled as false. But we can definitely say that the impact is there because even though we might encounter one or two similar articles even now, like two months after the publishing of the initial fact check, the numbers are significantly lower compared to that of the months ago when we wrote the fact check. So I think the impact is there for sure. Just to sort of bring this to a conclusion, what, you know, what advice would you give to a journalist about fact checking, about how they should be looking at information that they're getting? One of the main misconceptions about fact-checking is that it's very sophisticated or it involves many different steps that it can be very, uh, I don't know, hard to deal with. But I personally believe that fact-checking is rather straightforward and rather simple. All you have to do is rely on open sources and indicate those open sources into your work. So I would encourage every single journalist to rely on open sources as much as possible and to cite as many uh, valuable sources as possible. And when it comes to fact-checking, I think fact-checking is the foundation of journalism itself because no authentic and valuable journalism goes without fact-checking. So I think more and more journalists should be focused on incorporating the aspects of fact-checking in their work. And I think we are already going to that direction and uh, that makes me really happy. I've been talking to Sandro Gigori of the uh, Media Development Foundation. He's the English content editor for their um, Detector. This is fascinating stuff. Sandro, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.